Jesus. Amen. Well, it was just before midnight on February 9th, 1709, in Epworth, England, when a fire swept through a house. And there was a large sleeping family inside the house. And as the thick smoke and the flames grew intense, the family was awakened and struggled to get out of the house. And as they were gathered in front of the house, counting heads, they realized that one of their sons had been left behind in the burning house. And they looked up and saw their son at the window, frantically motioning for help. Um, The father desperately tried to reach his son multiple times, but the heat was just too intense. He couldn't get to him. And there was a neighbor, though, as the neighbors gathered, there was a neighbor who got other men together and he climbed on the shoulders of other men and was able to get to the sun through the window, break the window, pull the sun out of the window. And just as he got him to the ground, the house collapsed in flames. Um, As you would expect, the mother of that family never forgot that day. That image in that moment gave her the conviction to that that her son, John Wesley, um, was was spared for special reason that God had something in plan for his life. And so she said later to her son, she told him that he was a brand plucked from the burning. And that expression stuck with. Wesley, when he was 51 years old, he thought he was going to die. He was deathly ill, and he, anticipating his death, he wrote his own epitaph. And the epitaph began with those words, Here lieth the body of John Wesley, a brand plucked from the burning. Um, In God's grace, he didn't die. He lived on to, I think he lived to 87 years old, and... um, a brand plucked from the burning. And, and certainly, that's true. God's hand was upon the life of John Wesley. He became one of the central figures of the spiritual awakening that swept through the British Isles and made its way across the Atlantic to the 13 colonies. Obviously, we have benefited from this, this brand. Um, well, the two chapters in front of us, they also tell us the story of a baby who's rescued from certain death. And also, this baby, this boy, man, had a special calling and a work. He was also a brand plucked from the burning. The nation of Judah was on the brink of of total annihilation. It's impossible to exaggerate, I believe, the depth of the crisis that we encounter here in 2 Kings 11. It looks as though... All of God's promises concerning Messiah are going to be snuffed out. It it, it looks as though the Davidic line is about to die. All of God's purposes and plans for his chosen people that they're going to be rendered null and void. And because of that, the, the worship of Yahweh is going to be systematically eradicated from his people and from the land. Now, theologically speaking... We know that that can't happen. And we just sang, God, the certainty of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant from generation to generation. He will never break covenant with his people. He, he, is a, 
He is a faithful God. He does not change. He does not lie. And so we know theologically that God won't allow his promise to David and his descendants to fail. But I, I, I want you to just put that aside and allow yourself to enter into how, how and, and to feel how fragile things really were for the people of God. The only hope of avoiding the total obliteration of all that God promised to David is a little one-year-old infant. That's it. That's it. I mean, this is a major moment in salvation history. And you don't even probably know the names of these people. I mean, I was struggling to pronounce them all week. Um, there, there is no Christmas there's no Good Friday that we enjoyed last week. There's no Easter if this baby isn't saved from death. Humanly speaking, there's no table. There's no church because there's no Christ if this child isn't saved. And there, there are, as we'll see, there's two main threads that are going to hold this significant scene and story together. And both are incredibly instructive to us, not just in understanding the story, but for us in terms of if we, we need to sink our teeth into these and deeply believe them and live by them. And the first thread that we'll see is this, is God's unrelenting faithfulness and sovereign grace to keep his promises and his people. I mean, it's the, it's the gospel hope here for us that God will not fail his people. He will not back out on the promises he makes. It's not going to happen. The second thing we see, though, and we need to hold these together, is our responsibility to be instruments in God's hands to carry out his faithful plans. And we see it here in the lives of two individuals and others also, but, but they deeply believe the promise that God made to David. They're not questioning it. And yet... That doesn't lead them to passivity and say, well, let's just see how God figures this one out. No, they, they actively plan. They risk their lives. They, they make courageous, uh, they, they demonstrate courageous obedience to God to, to see that the seed that God promised to preserve is preserved. The, the, this divine sovereignty and human activity, they're, they're not at opposites, at odds with one another. Held together here. And as Christians, as a church, that's incredibly important for us to remember. That yes, we believe God has made his incredible promises and that they will come to pass. He has an unstoppable purpose, even for us as the church. And yet, that doesn't and should not make us passive. If you really sink your teeth into that the unstoppability of God's plans and purposes, it should make us have this wholehearted, risk-taking, life-sacrificing resolve to advance the cause that God promised never to fail, to advance that cause in the world. That's what I want us to see this morning. And so the question is, when it seems, and it does here in Second Kings 11, like, God's plan is on the brink of destruction. What do we do? Or as I'll phrase it in the outline, what should we never do when we feel like that? What should we never do? The first thing we should never do is never fear that the fire of God's cause will be completely extinguished. There have been times in history 
um, biblical history and and Christian history when when it seemed like the flame of God's plan was going to get snuffed out. Um, it, it, it was covered over by thick, cold, white ashes. Um, but underneath those ashes, there has always been and there always will be a glowing ember. There's a faithful remnant that God is preserving and always will preserve. God promised that He would keep a lamp burning in Jerusalem. He promised He would keep a seed, the descendant of David, until Messiah comes. And so as chapter 11 opens, though, that promise is hanging on by a very slender thread. That we are one infant away here from extinction. The extinction of that promise. And so this is the situation. I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Kings. And so I, I just let me just kind of catch you up. Word arrives here in 2 Kings 11 to Jerusalem that the king of Judah, Ahaziah, has been killed by Jehu, the king of Israel, the new king of Israel. Remember, Jehu went on his bloody purge, was appointed by God to purge Israel of Baal worship and of all of Ahab's descendants. He was the avenger. And so he come and went on this bloody purge. Ahaziah went to visit the king of Israel at, at Jezreel. And while he was there, he's slain by Jehu. Well, no big deal, right? This is just par for the course in Kings. Kings getting slain. Next in line, steps up, just move on. It's not, not so fast, though, because we have a problem in Judah. There's a couple of problems. One, there aren't very many eligible males left to be king. In, in, in Judah, Ahaziah's dad, Jehoram, he had all his brothers killed when he ascended to the throne. Then Ahaziah's brothers, all of them, he was the only one that survived, they all died in, a, in an attack on the nation, the Syrians and, and the, um, uh, excuse me, the Philistines. And so plus that, along with the Ahaziah, Jehu killed 42 of his other relatives, and so that's one of the problems. There aren't many males left. Second problem is that Ahaziah's mother isn't quite ready to leave palace life. She kind of likes things there. Um, Ahaziah had been king, but his mother, uh, Athaliah, really is the one who ran the show. She kind of has a pretty name, I think. But she is a wicked woman. She, she is the Jezebel of Judah. And she's the daughter of Ahab and probably Jezebel, though the text doesn't say. You know, he had multiple wives, but it's a pretty good chance. Her marriage with Jehoram, Ahaziah's father, was arranged, if you remember, by righteous king Jehoshaphat and wicked king Ahab. It was an arranged marriage to keep peace between the two nations, but it was a horrible compromise. It should not have happened. And, and through that foolish compromise on Jehoshaphat's part... Idolatry had a wide open door into the nation of Judah. And that's exactly what happened. She ended up building a temple in Jerusalem for the worship of Baal. And, and not only that, she, we find from Second Chronicles 24 that she vandalized the temple of the Lord and took objects from the temple so they could be used in the worship of Baal. This, this wicked, wicked woman. And we see Jehoshaphat's compromise coming back and biting the nation. Let me just, that's instructive for us. Sin always has consequences. It will come back. 
You, you cannot escape that, that what you, you will reap what you sow. That, that needs to be a warning to all of us. With her son's death, though, Athaliah is determined to fill the leadership void in Judah herself. And so we read in verse 1 again. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. Now, you need to stop and think about that. What is that saying? That says that a grandmother systematically murdered her own grandchildren. I mean, this is... This is we're, we're seeing here the awful depths of human depravity. And this is a gross picture of what we've seen, though, since Genesis 3, verse 15. This devilish desire for the seed of the woman to be crushed and to be eliminated so that it won't one day crush the serpent's head. It began in Genesis 3. It continues throughout history. This is Cain killing Abel. This is Pharaoh killing off the Hebrew children. This is Saul seeking to kill David. This is Herod trying to kill Jesus. I mean, the devil, the devil and those influenced by him, though, continues this attempt, even today, to kill off Christians. But by persecuting Christians, who, who are they really persecuting? It's Christ, the scriptures say. But yet we who bear witness to Christ will continue to struggle with this until he returns. So so this is Athaliah. Then we meet another woman in verse 2, Jehoshaphat. Not as pretty a name, but a very righteous woman. Um, She's a sister of Ahaziah, and so she's the daughter of Athaliah and Jehoram. And she sees the writing on the wall for all the boys and the men in her family. And so she, she, she has to do something. She can't save them all, but maybe she can save one. So she takes her one-year-old nephew, who was probably his mother had already been killed, and she takes him along with his nurse and hides him in, the bed cham- in one of the bedchambers in the temple. And this is a safe place to hide the infant prince because Athaliah was not allowed to enter the temple. She was a foreigner. That didn't stop her, as we'll see in a little bit. There's a Susanna found a great cover image for the bulletin, and you just get a picture of this. I think it's it's great. She was hesitant to show it. That's all. Oh, that's perfect. So it shows in the background the murder of these other boys and Jehoshaphat taking away this baby and the nurse and delivering them to a priest who we find out is her husband. But she takes she she takes this. And so verse 3, and he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. So thank God for Jehoshaphat. Again, humanly speaking, we don't have any of this without her. She takes an enormous risk because of her deep commitment to the Lord. She rather, she'd rather serve the Lord, Yahweh, than to respect and serve her mother. She chooses the Lord. She's marked by quiet obedience. We, Most of us, again, you may have never heard her name before in your life. You may have read this, but you couldn't remember it and did not pronounce it. And I don't think there's any girls here named after her since I said it was not as pretty of a name. I'm sorry if there are. <laughs> um, but but her obedience is quiet and hidden. You know, that that's normally how God's cause advances in the world. Um, most of us, you, you, your names aren't going to be remembered by others around the world in our generation or the generation that follows or generations down the road for your obedience to God. But this is the confidence we have. The judge of all the earth takes note. 
He knows everything. He sees everything. He, even the seemingly small acts of obedience. That is how most work is done in the building of God's kingdom. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing will go unrewarded. And we see a great example here in her. So, yeah, But the thing I want to see. The first thing we need to never, never fear. Never be afraid that God, God's word won't come to pass. That, that, that as, no matter how dark and cold it gets... I don't, we don't know what lays ahead of us. We don't know how long the Lord will tarry. We don't know how long, what we'll be able to see. But whatever happens, wherever we end up living, and however dark it seems to be, God's, we have confidence that God won't renege on His Word. Second thing we must never do is we must never underestimate what God can do with a few pyromaniacs. Yes, I worked that word into my outline. So I've been trying to do that for years. And you're thinking, why in the world here? But I'll explain. Pyromaniacs, those who love fire. I think I actually went online and looked up the definition after I made the outline. And it, I think the, the definition is technically those who have a compulsion to set things on fire. So maybe that doesn't work so well. But you say pyrophiles, maybe. Uh, those who love fire. Um, and this is what I mean. God is the one who keeps the flame of his purpose burning. And yet he chooses to use the risky obedience of men and women uh, who, who love the flame of his purpose. Pyromaniacs. The, the, those who are willing to sacrifice even their own lives to see that the lamp of his promise continues to burn. They'll, go to, they'll, they'll, they'll risk everything to see that that's accomplished and done. Again, this is not a story about what people do to save God's plan from destruction. That's not it. God is the main actor in the story. He's doing all of this, but he has this wonderful supporting cast that that he uses in his mercy to, to preserve his promises. He does it through people, through pyromaniacs. You know, we're introduced in verse 4 to this mysterious figure, I think, named Jehoiada. And in verse 9, we find out he's a priest. The writer of Kings never mentions it, but the writer of Chronicles tells us that he's Jehoshaphat's husband. And so he's the priest in the temple that's entrusted with the responsibility of caring for and protecting young Joash, the boy king. But he has bigger plans than just keeping this boy from dying. No, he has plans to restore the Davidic dynasty. And he has plans even beyond that to to restore and to recommit the nation to to proper and exclusive worship of the Lord. And that's what he's seeing. That's what his desire is. He's passionate about the flame of God's promise continuing on. And so it's obviously a very dangerous situation. So he uses great, he exercises great caution and great patience even in planning this. And so his plan doesn't take shape until the seventh year, the text says, of Athaliah's reign. And so first thing he does, and I'll just have to be quick here, he gathers together in the temple the captains of the Karaites and of the guards, verse 4. The Karaites were like mercenaries. They were kind of hired um, bodyguards for the royal family. And, and so Jehoiada made a covenant with them and put them under oath, an oath to secrecy and a commitment to restore David's throne. So he, he, he gets... He gets a team together. And after putting them under sacred oath, verse 4 says that he showed them the king's son. Can you just imagine that 
moment. Put yourself in the shoes of one of those guards, temple guards. You, you are part of the faithful remnant. You, you believe, though, that the Davidic dynasty has already come to a violent end. You almost wonder why you continue to do what you do. God's promises, you think, are done. And now there is this seven-year-old boy that's presented to you who is a seed of David. And what an emotional moment that must have been. Not to mention what little Jehoash was, Joash was thinking. Seven-year-old boy, I just try to put one of my own kids in his shoes. All these men staring at him and <laughs> uh, hugging him probably, Vern. Um, but it's time for action now. So Athaliah, she's a strong enough ruler that she, this is going to require swift, immediate, strong, unexpected response if this is going to work. And so all the details are worked out. It's all going to go down on the Sabbath. That's the day when the changing of the guards took place in the temple so it wouldn't appear unusual that there would be so many guards at the temple at the same time. That was normal on the Sabbath. And so has everything set up. The three companies of the guards would muster at three different locations in the temple and they're there to to guard the temple and particularly guard the king and anybody who tries to interfere they're to kill it's all laid out for us here and everybody verse 9 does what they're told everything's in place just waiting for the signal verse 10 and the priests gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been king david's which were in the house of the lord so these weapons are more than 200 years old and, and it's not so much strategic military strategy here. This is, this is more symbolic. And what, what Je, uh, Jehoiada is doing is in, he's infusing into this revelation the promises that God made to David. He's just, he's just making people see the significance of what's taking place. And so with the guards in place, Jehoiada, the text says, brought out the king's son put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. The testimony is God's covenant law. This is referenced in God's instructions to Israel when they were to have kings, that they were to to have a copy of the law. And this is just saying the king is to live by and rule by the law of God. Verse 12, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. And so the seven-year-old boy king he has instantly the support of the priests and of the temple guards and a big chunk of the military and certainly the popular support of the people as they're all gathered there on the Sabbath. With all that commotion going on of this coronation by coup, all the clapping, all the shouting, Athaliah wonders what in the world is going on over there. The temple's right next to the palace. And so verse 13, when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord and to the people. And it's one glance is all she needs to know what's going on here. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains of the trumpeters and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. She may not, probably doesn't recognize that this is her grandson, but she knows exactly what this whole occasion is about. I mean, it doesn't hurt that he's got a crown on his head. Um, but it's obvious that this boy king also has received instant and widespread support. 
verse 14 goes on, and, and Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Now what an ironic cry of this woman, this grandmother who murdered her own grandchildren to ascend the throne. As she's the arch traitor. She's crying treason. Well, Jehoiada acts decisively. He orders Athaliah to be seized and executed, and, and she's done that. She dies alone. I think the horses, the going through the horse gate is just points us back to Jezebel's death, trampled by horses. No one's there rallying for her support. I mean, everything, she's, she's removed with this surgical precision. Now, the next step are crucial. She's eliminated. What do we do next? The ne- it's, this is absolutely essential. Joash is obviously too young to reign over the nation. So Jehoiada pri- provides uh, leadership as his regent. And so the first act is the most important. The first thing they must do is they must recon- commit, recommit themselves to the Lord. That's number one. They needed to recognize the Davidic king, yes. But they mostly needed to be rightly related to the divine king. They were God's chosen people and they needed to, 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 to recommit to the Lord. Verse 17, and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the Lord and the people that they should be the Lord's, the Lord's people, his own possession. And also between the king and the people. So it's this covenant ceremony. And then next on the list is it's time to purge Baal worship. It has been allowed to flourish too long in Judah. So verse 18, then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore down his altars and his images. They broke in pieces and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. If you're going to truly commit yourself to the Lord, what are you going to do to the, to the Lord, the living God? What are you going to do with dead idols? You're going to smash them. That hasn't changed. If you truly want to love and be devoted to the Lord alone, we're going to be always smashing idols in our lives, and we all have them. I mean, there's much. This is not just Old Testament language. John ends his first epistle with that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols because of how you've been bought by the Lord. I mean, what a day this is, though. This is all one day. That's the way it seems to us as it's recorded for us. It's all engineered by Jehoiada. It's all pulled off with just precision. And it comes to a climax. There's this procession from the temple of the Lord to the palace where the new king, text says, took his seat on the throne of the kings, verse 19. Judah's long national nightmare is over. There's a king, David, on the throne again, even though he's only seven. (laughs) Um, Verse 20, so all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Despot has been deposed. And with her, the entire system of evil she represented has been done away with. And so the people are at peace. The city is quiet. Finally. (laughs) Finally. Well, God, as we said, God did this. He, he is the, the leading actor, yet he used, again, faithful, courageous, promise-believing servants, these pyromaniacs. And I, I would just say to us, may God be pleased to fill this local church with a bunch of 
fanatical pyromaniacs. With people who, who will risk all to see that God's cause is advanced in this world. The advance of the gospel. Disciples made of all nations. And we, we don't need to stop praying, planning, working, sacrificing to see that accomplished until we die or until Christ returns. I mean, it, and it's not always flashy and showy. So I don't think, well, I'm, I'm advocating some eccentric kind of lifestyle. No, it's generally quiet, hidden. It, it's, it's, it, but it's courageous. It's intentional. It's deliberate. It affects how we use our time, how we use our money, how we think about relationships, how we relate to our neighbors, how we relate to our coworkers, our classmates. It's, it's, it's a whole reordering of your life to be consumed with fulfilling the mission that the Lord has given us. That he will not let fail. We'll come back to that in the end. But I, I pray that we would be a church full of worshiping, idol smashing, uh, growing, word obeying followers of Jesus Christ who just live on mission. We're fanatical about the flame of God's cause. May God help us. Third thing we need to never do, and it just seems like darkness is going to win. We'll, have, we'll be quick. Never forget that God's cause is fueled by God's worship. And I'll, I'll just have to summarize much in, in chapter 12, and that was by design. Um, and so the chapter 12 opens real quickly, though, with a summary of King Joash's reign. He has one of the longest reigns of Judah, Judah's kings, 39 years, which is not a surprise when he starts at age 7. That helps. Um, but he receives a hesitant commendation by the writer and he, he, for, for doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verses 2 and 3, but yet he failed to remove the high places. And, and even in the positive part of Joash's evaluation, there's, there's an important qualification, limitation here. It says, verse 2, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Now, I, I don't think that's the best translation. I'm not trying to put suspicion of... Bible translators, but this could be translated a different way, and I think it's more accurately translated this way. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days Jehoiada the priest instructed him. And, and this is what I mean, and this is confirmed in Second Chronicles. He, he did right initially, but once, Je, once Jehoiada died, his life became a disaster. He, his final days were awful. Things fell apart. He, he didn't finish nearly as well as he began. And we'll say more about this in the last point. But, but that's how the chapter 12 opens. Then what we'll see for the rest of chapter 12 is that the major accomplishment of Joash's reign is that he repairs the temple. The temple had been in disrepair. It had been neglected. It had been abused by the Ahab-influenced rulers like Athaliah and, and, and others. And, and so it had, it had been, been built now 150 years but it was in need of many repairs. And so he makes it a priority to repair the temple. And he puts uh, provisions in place and kind of reforms how they handle the finances in the, in the nation to make sure that it gets done. So he, he, he commands that the temple be repaired. But what we find out is by the 23rd year of his reign, there's no progress that's been made. It's, nothing's been done. I mean, we've probably had worked and been in different settings where it felt like that, you know? How many people 
How many people work in, in Congress? Well, about half of them, maybe. Uh, that kind of thing, you know. I mean, there's just not much happening. Um, and so he, nothing's happening. So he calls the priests together. He rebukes them. Why are you not repairing the house, verse 7? And he basically takes the job away from them, gives it to private contractors. That's my paraphrase. And, um, and he changes how the funds are handled, how they're taken in, how they're distributed. So all this is going on. But you can read through the details. But I, what I want you to see is what's crucial to Joash early on in his reign is that the temple needs to be repaired because the proper worship of the Lord is crucial for us as a nation. And I think he's influenced by the priest Jehoiada in, in, in making this a priority. But I would say that's true for us as well. It, it, all that we do to advance the Lord's cause in this world, to fulfill his mission, the, the, the to missions, evangelism, church planning, disciple making, the gospel going out to the far reaches of the world and across the street, all of that must be fueled by this, this burning passion to see God worshipped and adored. It's got to fuel everything. This burning desire for the glory of God to be, to be heralded and to be exalted. It's got to fuel everything. And the last thing that we see is, the last thing we need to never do is never think that a bright light can't grow dim. As bright as his reign began, and as wonderful and happy a scene as we ended chapter 11, by the time we end chapter 12, the wheels have completely fallen off. Good beginnings don't guarantee good endings. And we see this with Joash's reign. There's a few evidences of this demise. Israel and Judah, they're preoccupied with all their internal affairs and struggles. But all the while, the enemies are, are moving and active around. And so Hazael, that wicked king of Syria that we've, we've run into before in Kings, he normally has his sights on Israel, but he puts his sights on Judah. And he comes into Philistine territory and verse 17, he fought against Gath, took it. So he, he takes control of these important coastal trade routes, which makes Judah very vulnerable militarily and economically. And so jo- Joash just reacts and he says, I got to buy him off. So he goes into the temple. He takes sacred objects from the temple and gold from the temple and he buys off Haziel, this pagan king of Syria. To, to protect the nation. And it works. Jerusalem isn't, isn't attacked. This is a major compromise, a ma- major failure on his part. And, and then the writer gives us a summary of his life, and, and, and yet there's a surprise. It's typical format, but we find in verse 20 that his officials conspired against him, struck him down in the, in the um, house of Milo. So this is the tragic. And now we're not told what, by the writer of Kings, what the motive was behind the assassination. We're told the names of the servants and, and that they are servants. These are not, this is not an outside job. Um, these are insiders. But the writer of King, or Chronicles fills in the blanks for us. It, and it all goes back to that little cryptic statement again in Second Kings 12.2 when he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, pleasing to the Lord all the years that Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The Chronicles goes on to say that after Jehoiada died, he abandoned the Lord. He began worshiping Baal, worshiping other gods. He abandoned the temple. And so apparently there was more desire to please his mentor than there was really to please God. When the Lord 
sent the prophet Zechariah, who was Jehoiada's son. After Jehoiada died, God sent Zechariah to rebuke Joash. And Second Chronicles twenty four twenty one says that by command of the king, Joash, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So he has this, this prophetic voice silenced by killing him. And he goes on to say, his servants then conspired against him, Joash, because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed. He snuck in and murdered him, assassinated him. You, you, you can't help but think of the difference between how his reign began and how his reign ended. That's, it's, it's, a sobering, it's a sobering thing to see. He came to the throne by a coup to restore the worship of God and put God back in his rightful place of, of the nation. And yet he's taken out by a coup because he became a stumbling block to seeing that purpose even realized. Um, so he's buried in the city of David, verse 21, but his, his body is not placed in the royal tombs, we find out from Second Chronicles. It's disgrace. He ends his life in disgrace and shame. And yet, God, by God's grace, his son, Amaziah, reigns in his place. That's how it ends. So a good, good beginning doesn't guarantee a good ending. That's also true for us. To, to, to run the race well, you have to finish well. Um, if, you don't, if you don't want to flame out like Joash, you have to cultivate this deep-seated devotion to God, relationship with Jesus it's got to be personal. Young people, don't, don't just coast on the fumes of your parents' devotion to God. It's because they drag you here. But all of us, don't, don't just think that you're just going to kind of live off the weekly um, assembly. Get, get, your, get your tank full and then go on and just kind of drain it the rest of the week. No, it's got to be more than that. You're going to flame out. There's, again, these two big threads in the text. The unstoppable, sovereign grace of God to accomplish His purpose and this personal, practical responsibility. This is, again, this is what I want you to see, how it shows up for us. As Jesus has said wonderful promises to us, and I have a whole long list, and I won't, we can't go through them. Jesus said, my sheep will, they will hear my voice. <laughs> they must come. But, but that... Then he doesn't say, though, well, just sit by and watch how I do it. Just watch the sheep come home. No, he says, you go into all the nations and make disciples. He said, I will build my church in the gates of Hades. They're not going to overcome it. But then we have all of these commands throughout the New Testament of how we're to labor hard for both the internal growth of the church and the external spread of the gospel. And we, we lay our lives down to see that happen. So it's, it's, it's both and wonderful promises. But the more deeply we believe them, the more courageous we'll be in doing our part to see that they come to fruition. I mean, this is the tension I mean, with, that we're dealing with with this Vision 2020 kind of a thing. That it's, 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 it's not us asking God to rubber stamp some little silly plans we come up with. I mean, I hope they're not silly, but... I mean, just man-made strategies. That's not it. No, we're begging God to work and to. to he, he, we know that He's going to keep His promises. We know that He's going to do. He's going to continue to save and sanctify His people. 
but, but we want to plan just like Jehoiada and, and, and Jehoshaphat are planning and strategizing and praying and preparing for what God can do. And so that's, that's the hope with this kind of stuff. It's our confidence is in God alone and, and what he's going to accomplish by us and through us and in us. But yet we want to pray, plan, prepare for what he will do by us, through us, in us. So the promise Jesus attaches, so, and, 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 and again, more than anything else throughout that process, what we want to see is the church realigned to, to the main task that we've been entrusted. What is that? To make disciples. That's, that is it. That is, the, that is the arrow that we are firing all the time. God, realign us that we can get distracted by other lesser things, but may we go hard after this. And Jesus gives this wonderful promise that's attached to that commission to go and make disciples of all nations. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of this age, in, in the end of the age. Jesus, the one who's been given all authority in heaven on earth, is with us as we go and make disciples. The King is present, but the Lord is present with his people. He is risen, he is ascended, he is reigning, he is with us.